Good morning again. Would you turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 21? Genesis chapter 21. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that will be on page 15. We've been moving at a pretty good clip through this first large book of the Bible, uh, and and I found it important to remind us that uh, the Scripture is remarkable. So when you look at it zoomed out, you get a little different picture than when you zoom in. Uh, And so this morning, I'm going to try to weave us through these two chapters of Genesis 21 and 22 and show you a couple key themes that are held together here in this place. To begin with, we will go ahead and read Genesis 21, verse 1 through 21. 1 through 21. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. And Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. And Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah had bore him. And when his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring." Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. And he set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. And she went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. And when the water and the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. She went off and sat down about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. And God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies here. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up, and he lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. In 2004, the Indian Ocean earthquake and tsunami claimed the lives of 280,000 people. One event. In 1970, the Bola cyclone caused a half a million deaths in Bangladesh. In 76, the Tangstan earthquake claimed as many as three quarters of a million lives. In 1931, the central China floods, they estimate that Between the flooding and the people who died from the disease and sickness afterwards was between one to four million people. Those are the first, the four worst natural uh, natural disasters in the past hundred years when measured by the number of human casualties. But there's other ways to measure human casualties as well. 
to all four of those are less than, in the last two years, the over 4.5 million deaths which are attributed to COVID-19. Now, we praise God that those numbers pale in comparison to the 50 million people died in the 1918 Spanish flu, but they're still quite significant. And we could consider many other horrific events, as we just prayed for. Hurricane Ida and its displacement and the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan and the lives that are suffering over there. We could go on down the list. How should Christians understand these events? Trials and tribulations. How should we think about the difficulties which we run up against in this life? So some Christians have tended to respond by saying we just need to hunker down and hide out and wait. The, the very snarky way of putting it is why polish the brass on a sinking ship? Let's just hide out and wait till we're taken out of here. But I would argue, and I'm going to argue this morning from this passage, that is a deeply problematic way of understanding these events. Because as we saw last week in Genesis chapters 18 through 20, God providentially works out his plan in time using the ups and downs of life, using even the sins of people, and using their prayers too. So God is working out his plan of redemption. And so Christians need to avoid this monastic approach to life, hiding away behind the walls of a monastery. And instead, we need to have a missionary-minded life, which seeks to intercede, as we saw Abraham doing last week. Well, this morning, that theme will continue on, but we'll see it shift just a little bit. Because the main theme for this week, uh, will come up on the board here in a moment, the main theme for this week is this, God uses trials and tests to prove to his people the sufficiency of his word. It's written there at the bottom. So rather than seeing the brokenness of our world and the tests to our faith as reasons to flee or to hide out, rather, Christians are to be those who see that God uses tests and trials to prove the sufficiency of his word. And we will consider these passages under the following three sections, the laughter, the treaty, and the provision. These three, uh, two chapters and these kind of three major stories that run through here actually will put directly at odds or directly uh, a threat to the three promises which God gave to Abraham starting back in Genesis 12, which he promised him a land and a seed and a blessing. And so that's why the title of the sermon is When Trials and Tests Come. Uh, we'll begin with this first section we read, the laughter. And the reason that it's called the laughter is because there's some puns going on with the word for laughter. Uh, the scene begins with this long, long-awaited fulfillment. The promised seed has arrived at last, the birth of Isaac. Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90, well past menopause. She's had a miraculous son. God is sovereign over the womb and life. For Samuel 2.6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. So it's been well said that God sovereignly gave life from a dead couple. By dead couple meaning that her womb was dead. She was well past menopause. So in this one verse, we are transported, though, in verse 8, from the birth of Isaac and the laughter which Sarah had. Uh, now remember, the, the laughter there is that both Abraham and Sarah had laughed before. Abraham laughed in marvel, and Sarah laughed in disbelief. Uh, but the laughter is going to come up yet again. And here she says her unbelieving laugh has been turned into a laugh of amazement at what God has done. 
And then, as I mentioned, verse 8 is this transition. It's basically a three-year period. It was, it was roughly a three-year time frame to wean a child. And the reason Abraham throws a big feast on that day was because infant mortality was huge. So if you get, get a child through the weaning phase, then it, it was on much firmer ground. So they throw a big feast. But at that feast, there's another laughter that takes place. Uh, our NIV translates it as the son of Hagar was mocking, but it's from the same root word he's laughing at. So you see this pun playing out on the word for laughter. So which is to say that this promised offspring is threatened. And since the blessing is going to come through the offspring, so too is the blessing threatened. Now there's a brilliant storytelling element that takes place in these, these first 21 verses. Ishmael's never named. He's referred to as Hagar's son, the son, Abraham's son, the boy, but he's never named, which is a way of subtly demonstrating, which has already been made explicit, that Isaac is his only son, as we will see in the next chapter, that all the blessings and promises will come through him, the son of promise. Now, although Ishmael was Abraham's son, all those promises will come through Isaac. And this is the scene which I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. In Galatians 4, Paul is making commentary on this passage. And he says, quotes here from Sarah, cast out the slave woman or servant woman and her son because the son of the slave woman will not inherit with the son of the promise, the child of promise. And the way that Paul applies that passage there in Galatians 4 is to say this, is what really matters is those who have the faith of Abraham. Uh, not the direct lineage of Abraham is not what's important anymore. It's those with the faith of Abraham, Galatians 3.29. Those who have the faith of Abraham are heirs according to the promise. And that works itself out by saying, well, all those who live in the earthly Jerusalem, Paul says, are really sons of Hagar, which of course would have offended all the inhabitants of the earthly Jerusalem. But instead he says, no, 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 those of faith, with the faith of Abraham, those are the children of Sarah, and their inheritance is the heavenly Jerusalem as we will see. Well, back here in Genesis, Abraham's first hears Sarah's call to get rid of the slave woman or servant woman. And that's a very tough pill for him to swallow. Ishmael's probably around the age of 16 here. And so he's had 15, 16 years to walk with Abraham as his father. Abraham loves him. It's his son. So we read that Abraham was distressed greatly by this. And this time, in contrast with the time before, where he should not have listened to the voice of his wife, here God specifically tells him, listen to the voice of your wife. She's exactly right. I will still make Ishmael great, but the promise will come through Isaac. But can you imagine that? Sending away your firstborn son with a skin of water and some food? It seems rather heartless at one level. Now, in the ancient world, though, this would have been very fair. He's giving her freedom. And I've already mentioned that the NIV translated slave, it would be probably a better rendering of the Hebrew to say servant. Uh, these were oftentimes willing relationships. And so by cutting her loose and giving her water and food to go, he's giving her her freedom. She's, she's no longer bound to her servant obligation. But we see some difficulty there because obviously the moment she runs out of water, uh, it's pictured as though Ishmael's a little baby again. She sets him down by a tree, giving this image of how helpless they are. And of course, God appears to her and says that he will, he will care for the boy and opens up her eyes to, to see the water which she's able to provide. And we are told that God indeed fulfilled his word and, and Ishmael was to grow and, and to be a, a man. Well, in the flow of the two chapters, 
This is, <clears throat> this is only the first time that Abraham will be called upon to entrust his child to the Lord. That's why pairing these two chapters together can be important. Uh, many times we'll focus on Genesis 22 because that is the great giving of Isaac, but there's two children, two sons that Abraham has to give. And this is the first one. And he responds in fear and worry, and yet he turns in obedience to God. So these two sons become a demonstration of how God uses trials and tests for his people to prove the sufficiency of his word. But for the first readers, this would have struck them particularly interesting because all the language used of Hagar in this story is going to be repeated for them in the Exodus. All the same key words and phrases of going out and sending out is going to be used of Israel. Uh, so for one sense, she was sent out into the wilderness and she runs out of water. Well, that sounds familiar if you're familiar with the rest of the books of Moses. That's precisely what happens to Israel. And twice Israel is tested with needing water in the wilderness. And twice God miraculously provides, though they grumble. Well, here she weeps, but she doesn't grumble. She just mourns. So she's seen as better than the Israelites. Uh, and then you're given another little hint. is this hint that she takes a wife for her son from Egypt. Remember, she's an Egyptian, so that makes sense. But this would have been a stinging rebuke because, again, once we read through the rest of the story of Israel in the wilderness, they keep wanting to go back to Egypt. There's this idea that Egypt is fruitful, and so they want to keep going back to Egypt to get their fulfillment of things, their fruitfulness. It seems like the easy path. The Nile River goes into flood stage every year and just waters your crops for you. Oh, it seems like a much easier path. And as we said last week, this theme of going back to Egypt is subtly woven through Genesis as a warning. It looks easy, but it's not. It's a way of destruction. So by way of application for us as a church, what are some things that might look easy or fruitful, but maybe turn out not to be so much? Now, let me illustrate this this way. One of my favorite Christian historians is a man named Ian Murray. He wrote uh, a number of books. I recommend anything he writes, but his book, Evangelicalism Divided, outlines a large shift that took place primarily in the 20th century in British and American Christianity. And Murray demonstrates how the roots of this change go back to a German theologian by the name of Friedrich Schleiermacher, the father of liberal theology. Essentially, what Schleiermacher's project was, was to downplay revelation, God's word and doctrine, and to, to radically ramp up the fact that Christianity should really be about a feeling of absolute dependence upon God. That's, that was what he said. He replaced objective statements about God and theology with experience and with feeling. However, he did so not by coming straight out and saying, don't pay attention to the Bible or theology. He was much more subtle than that. He just only ever really talked about feeling and experience. And so scripture lost its importance. Uh, Murray recounts a time when a friend came to Schleiermacher and he confessed to him, you know, I'm a heathen in my thinking. I don't believe anything that Christianity teaches. And yet, he said, but in my feelings, perhaps maybe in his ethical standards or morals, I am entirely a Christian in my feeling, he said. To which Schleiermacher re responded, understanding is not necessary. My Christian feeling is conscious of a divine spirit indwelling me which is distinct from my reason. You see what's been done? We've severed the truths which you must believe and confess for the feeling which you must have. And now we sound an awful like Mormonism and the burning in your bosom. Uh, indeed, Schleiermacher 
barred doctrinal preaching from the pulpit. It was experience, not teaching, was to be the object of the preacher. He said this, the real thing in the religious discourse is an imparting of the religious consciousness or feeling. Here's the thing. Conservative Christians of the day didn't buy any of this, or so it seemed. They, they, they didn't really uh, like Schleiermacher. He was put on the shelf as a bad guy, the father of liberal theology and all that. But Schleiermacher won the day, even in many conservative Christian circles. For example, it became common to hear people say things like, well, people may believe in God with or without knowing him. Let me show you how far this went. There's an interview, you can still look it up on YouTube, uh, uh, from Robert Schuller in the Crystal Cathedral during the old Hour of Power, for those of you who remember that. And he was interviewing Billy Graham. Billy Graham was no liberal. Billy Graham was a very conservative man. And Robert Schuller asks him in this interview, he says, what do you think the future of Christianity is? This is what Billy Graham said, and I quote, I think that there is the body of Christ which comes from all the Christian groups around the world or outside the Christian groups. I think everybody loves who loves Christ or knows Christ, whether they are conscious of it or not, are members of the body of Christ, end quote. It was just so much a part of the age and the culture that even Billy Graham used that language. You can go watch the rest of the clip, and he repeats it and very much clarifies that's exactly what he meant. Billy Graham, again, was no liberal, but it was just in the air. It was just something that was imbibed. And we think that we are more compassionate than God. And so when we see someone who just seems like a lovely person, that, that maybe we need to get rid of the doctrinal and get rid of the truths and change it. Christianity is about what we feel or experience and behave far more than what we believe. Well, I bring this up to remind us, Christian churches will always be tempted to look for some new thing, some new teaching, some new way to hook people. One of the greatest temptations Christians have faced since Schleiermacher is to trust our emotions more than our interpretations of Scripture. And examples could be multiplied again and again and again. But one of them is in popular Christian songs. I encourage you, go to the top 100 chart of Christian worship songs and read the lyrics. You'd be amazed how many of them don't actually say anything about God. Uh, half of them, you'd wonder if they're even like talking about someone's boyfriend is what they talk about. Let me give you another example of this. Years ago, there was a guy who was one of the finalists in the uh, uh, American Idol, and he, he uh, got pretty big in the kind of rock scene, and he wrote this song that was clearly about being on the road and wanting to be back home with his family. I'm going home. And Christians were just like, yes, and because it was popular and it sold and it grabbed us just the right way. I mean, he's got a great voice. We pumped it all over Christian radio, so much so that there was a whole bunch of mothers who took their little kids and teenagers to go to this concert, thinking, oh, this will be a great Christian concert. No, it was a very, very secular rock concert, which was entirely inappropriate for young people. We are so quick to patent and stamp and use whatever works. And the sad reality is that songs work. They feel good. Well, in these chapters, what we see about Abraham is this. Abraham does not bend to his emotions. He trusts God's word. His emotion was, that's my son. But he trusted in God's word. So, friends, God does his work through his word, graciously using the trials and tests of this life to strengthen our reliance upon his word, not upon our feelings about his word or about this culture. 
And culture is the next thing that will come up as we see in point two, the treaty. Look at Genesis 21, 22 through 34. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me and the country where you now reside as a foreigner the same kindness I have shown to you. Abraham said, I swear it. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this. You did not tell me, and I heard about it only today. So Abraham brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a treaty. And Abraham set apart seven ewe lambs from the flock. And Abimelech asked Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs you have set apart by themselves? And he replied, accept these seven lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well. So that place was called Beersheba, because the two men swore an oath there. And after the treaty they had been made at Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called upon the name of the Lord, the eternal God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. So here we find the same Abimelech as before, who Abraham had, had tricked. Well, he comes to him with his military commander, partially in a show of strength, to, to form a treaty. And, and treaties were typically formed between slightly greater kings and lesser kings. And Abimelech recognizes that this blessing flows from Abraham. And so this is that part of the land promise that might be threatened, as Abraham has dug a well. But we find out that Abraham's well has been t- taken over, it seems. And so what starts, though, is Abimelech comes up to have this treaty, and, and Abraham says, I'll do it, but there's a problem. You guys took this well from me. You threatened this, this promise, as it were. And so Abraham swears an oath with him, but before he does, he, he mentions the well, to which Abimelech's like, I don't know anything about that. Well, taking him at face value, last time we saw Abimelech, he was more honest than Abraham, so I'm just going to take him at face value. Some commentators think that he might have been uh, lying, but I don't see any reason to take it that way. But Abimelech then and Abraham, they swear this covenant together, and he gives him, he gives him of the, the cattle and things, and there's these seven ewe lambs off to the side, which Abraham says is a witness for the well that he dug. That's to say that if Abimelech accepts those lambs, he's accepting Abraham really did dig the well, and it really is his to own. And then we're told that that place was called Beersheba, which is a pun, because the Hebrew can be read well of seven, Sheva, seven sheep, or well of oath or promise, beer, Sheba. It's a, it's a pun. It can be taken either way. And so uh, this is why they have this naming of the well, which is done by someone later, of course. Now, I'll come back to the Tamarisk tree and stuff in a moment, but I want to highlight a couple of important things here. One commentator's noted, Abimelech provides a model of how kings on the earth and rulers should act towards God's people. Uh, he, he comes to Abraham, and he, he recognizes his value that he adds in the society, and he says, I want, to, I want to sustain that relationship. And then Abraham calls out an injustice that's taken place. And he responds, oh, let, let's make that right. So this is precisely the way rulers should be. And earlier I prayed and were reminded that Paul told Timothy that I urge then, first of all, that prayers, petitions, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, especially for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. That's 1 Timothy Two, one, and two. That's why I regularly pray for governors and leaders in our country, because we're commanded to. We pray for them. We pray that their leadership would allow us to continue to worship as we're supposed to, to live quiet lives. 
But here's the thing. We don't always get good leaders. And there's other texts in the New Testament which speak to this issue of leadership, which we need to consider. In particular, one of the more well-known ones is Romans 13, 1 through 7. Here's some key sections from that, that passage. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. They are God's servants. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as matters of conscience. I don't know about you, but those verses can make us a little uncomfortable in some of the days that we live in, if we're being honest. And, and I've heard many, many Christians argue, well, see, the thing is that they're, they're servants for your good, and so maybe this text doesn't quite apply to us. Well, I'd be prepared to say that that is to treat the Bible like a wax nose, because Paul wrote this about the Roman authorities who would behead him, not for a crime, but for exercising his religious right, preaching the gospel, a right they didn't acknowledge. Uh, Peter's going to say the same thing. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. Basically the same language. Oh, and by the way, Peter wrote this of the Roman government perhaps even of the emperor who would have him crucified upside down if tradition is correct. Both Paul and Peter then are very clear. There is no authority that has not been given by God. Which is to say that God is providentially ruling over all things, as we've seen last week, and that includes rulers. Rulers for both good and evil. See, one theologian has wisely said way in the past, if we look to God's word, we are not only subject to authority of princes who perform their office towards us uprightly and faithfully as they ought, but also to the authority of all who perform not a whit of the prince's office. He goes on to say, Indeed, the Lord says that they who rule unjustly and incompetently have been raised up by the Lord to punish the wickedness of his people. See, friends, even unjust rulers are raised up for God for his purposes. But let's say maybe you're still unconvinced. Let's go to Jesus. Matthew 5, 39 through 42. He's in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's speaking of retaliation, and he says this, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone would force you to go one mile, go with him two miles. That last little statement, going one mile, that was bound up with a Roman law where a Roman soldier could commandeer anybody to say, you are now going with me and you're going to carry my luggage for one mile. You could say that mandated you to do this. They commandeered, commanded you to do this. And Jesus' call to them was, go willingly two miles. Friends, how does that land given our current context? Does Jesus' word shape our thoughts about submitting to unjust laws and unjust rulers? We must remember, friends, our hearts are deceitfully wicked, as Tim prayed. 
We will continue to sin and to think wrongly about these things. And I would just submit to you that we need to be careful to react to governing authorities, even unjust ones, and make sure that our response is Christian. I'm not about to prescribe how these situations need to be prescribed and applied to your life as individuals in the various difficulties and situations we we live in. But, friends, we stand on the firmest possible ground when we say that God is sovereign over the rulers and even unjust rulers. So perhaps we should listen to Peter and Paul and Jesus, and instead of reacting, perhaps we should pause. Maybe rather than getting angry, we should lament. Maybe we should start by mourning over the Holocaust that is the abortion industry. Maybe we should weep over the $150 billion human trafficking industry, $99 billion of which is sexual exploitation of human beings kept as slaves. Maybe we should mourn the fact that that someone who is known to have done this, Jeffrey Epstein, was palling around with presidents from both political parties and Bill Clinton and Donald Trump. Think on that for a minute and tell me America does not deserve wicked rulers. Maybe we should look at the tendency of American Christians to be more worried about politics than evangelism. Maybe we should weep for what passes as Christianity. You see, maybe we should, as we will see Abraham do in a minute, realize that when we're being tested and tried, the question at the end of the day is, will we trust God's word? We sang, we dare not trust even the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Friends, is that how we respond to wicked rulers? Because... As with Abraham, friends, we have no lasting city here. It may seem that the the land promise is being threatened, but Abraham was looking to the city whose builder was God. We're citizens of heaven. We're just sojourners called to be disciples who pick up our cross and follow our Lord. So friends, may we be known as a people who worship God far, far more than we fight the power, whatever that's supposed to mean. So, how are these scriptural truths working themselves out in your life? Are you finding it true that the tests and trials of life press you back into the reality and sufficiency of God's word? Because that is exactly what will happen to Abraham in the next scene when he is called to the greatest test, which I think most of us, if we were honest, would not pass as well as Abraham does. But before we get there, those last two points I mentioned, uh, it, it has this little interesting line. It mentions he planted a tamarisk tree and then called on the eternal God. Those are unique phrases in Genesis. What are they all about? Well, the, the tamarisk tree was a sign of fecundity or fruitfulness. So Abraham calls on the Lord, trusting in God's fruitfulness. Notice he's just sent away his son, Ishmael. He's entirely trusting that the fullness of God's plan, that an incalculable offspring will come through Isaac, this just weaned child. So it's a beautiful demonstration of faith. And that's bolstered by calling him the eternal God, which has only been used of God referring to himself and his covenant as the eternal covenant. So Abraham worships God with these two elements that wrap around the promise that's going to come to pass through Isaac. And that sets us up for God calling him to sacrifice his son. So look at chapter 22, and we'll read the first 19 verses. The provision. So sometimes later, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, 
Here I am, he replied. And then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain, I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants on his, and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife and the two of them went on together. And Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. And he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And they reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horn, and he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And it is to this day said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. <clears throat> right after this, this chapter ends with talking about Nahor's sons. There's an incredible structuring thing that's taking place in Genesis. This is an exact mirror of chapter 12, where it started with the sons of Terah. And now we have Nahor, his brother. And then you have the Abrahamic promise. And the whole thing is a chiasm, all the way from chapter 12 through 22. And in the middle is the promise of the son, which is now being threatened here at the end of the narrative story, as it were, of Abraham's life. It, it's an incredible thing from a structuring perspective. But here, the first thing we must ask about this story is, how in the world does God demand a human sacrifice? What is that about? Uh, how do we justify that? How do we justify that Abraham doesn't really respond to it? I mean, we just saw Abraham worship the eternal, unchanging God for his promise of fruitfulness through this son, and God says, okay, go sacrifice him. And not a word, not a peep. Well, let's think on that for a minute. First, let's answer the question, why didn't Abraham just simply say, no, that's, that's paganism, that's, that's grotesque, I'm not doing it. Well, there's two short answers. The first short answer is that uh, Abraham has grown in his faith, as we've seen. Oh, many failures on the way, some big ones, but he trusts the Lord. So much so that the author of Hebrews explains to us the inner workings of Abraham's mind when he says that Abraham believed God would raise him back from the dead. So Abraham was convinced that I'm going to do this and my son will die, but that God is able to bring him back as a wonderful show of faith, obviously. So that is certainly true. But a second reason why Abraham didn't react and deny this was because as the law will later show, it was required that the firstborn son be redeemed, be something, be bought back. 
And that will play out later once we get to the tribes of Israel, whereas the Levites take the place of the firstborn for all Israel. And they are dedicated to the Lord, given over for service for him in place of that firstborn. Which is to say, it seems Abraham probably had some familiarity with this idea that the firstborn son is God's, and you have to dedicate him entirely to God. And that's probably the reason why he didn't react with just an instant, absolutely not, that he knew God was calling in what was his, what he owed him. And this is why God says, your son, your only son, because from God's point of view, Ishmael is not Abraham's son, not, not that God has given him, at least, as we've seen. So that seems to be what's playing out here. And then in the flow of the narrative, though, we're meant to see how much better Abraham responds to this request to let go of his son. And the first one we saw, he was very upset with the, the thought of, of taking away Ishmael, of sending him away, and yet he still obeyed once God clarified it. Here there's not a word, just obedience. He gets up early in the morning, he cuts the wood, he takes the trek, and he goes the whole way. His faith is just on wonderful display here. And as I said, I think that we would probably, if we're being honest, not think we would do as well as he did on this test. If God called you to something of this, I don't know that we would do as well. So he says, even more his faith being put on display, the boy and I will go worship and we will come back. In such faith. And ultimately, the, the whole hinge of 22 is this repeated phrase, the Lord will provide a lamb for himself. And on that mountain, the Lord will provide. So that's the, the central idea of just this story. Yet even with all this faith on full display, the test was not over until the final moment when God called out, stop, and the ram was seen. On the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. A substitute shall be provided. It's a remarkable scene. And then God, as we said, repeats his covenant blessing to Abraham and to his offspring that they will possess the gates of their enemies and through all the nations of the world will be blessed through him. So there's an interesting tension here, as we've seen many times in this book. Uh, see, God had already walked through the pieces of the covenant back in Genesis chapter 15. Uh, he has uh, 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 guaranteed that the covenant will be fulfilled. And yet here we read, that Abraham, it's because of you have obeyed my voice that this covenant will be fulfilled. Be careful labeling these covenants, conditional or unconditional. Just like you, be careful. Don't minimize sovereignty and responsibility. It's both and. I know we don't like that as Westerners for some reason, but it's both and. Which is why Augustine could write in his famous confessions, his prayer, command what thou wilt and grant what thou commands. That's not either or. That's both and. Paul says the same thing, same idea, Philippians 2, 12-13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Both and. God would assure the covenant would be fulfilled. Abraham had to obey. Now, we read earlier from the book of James who considered all joy when you encounter various temptations and trials. I don't know if Abraham considered it joy, but he certainly went about it faithfully. But if you go on from there to chapter 2, we read that Abraham's obedience here is, James writes in James 2.21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, this is, not, um, this is not in contradiction to what Paul says, that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. 
Rather, Paul is looking at the root of faith, and James is looking at the fruit of faith. All true faith will bear fruit. Many will claim and even seem Christian for a good long period of time, but they end up leaving the faith and proving they never were. It's like John would write in 1 John, they, they were of us, but they're going out from us, prove that they never actually were of us. No, all those who are truly converted, who've been born from above, as Jesus will say in John 3, are those whose faith works and works itself out, itself out in acts of love and service to those around us. What's startling about this testing of Abraham's faith is that this is the culmination of 25 years. And plus, Isaac's probably a teenager or even older at this point now. So this almost half his life, you know, Abraham, well, not half his life. And you know, he's, he's pushing, you know, 115 maybe now, 120, who knows. This huge section of his life and God has, has called him to walk this path. And now he's asking him to threaten Isaac. And yet he obeys. Like I said, I don't think many of us, if we're honest, would, would do so well at this test. I, I, I don't know that I would do it. I don't see how I could. Which I think is why the New Testament speaks of the Lord giving us gifts of faith. But it's a wonderful picture for us to consider. Because what this means is that Abraham's trust in God was not in the promises of God, but in the God of the promise. You see, we can be incredibly adept at worshiping the promises of God more than God himself. One commentator put it this way, paradoxically, it is because Abraham was willing to put the promise on the line and risk losing it that the promise was renewed. Had he clung to the promise in an idolatrous fashion, choosing the promise over God, then the promise itself would have apparently been placed in jeopardy. Or Jesus puts it this way, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake will find it. How about for us? Are there some promises which maybe you're clinging to more than God himself? Or ask the question a different way. Imagine the thing in your life that you're most terrified of losing. Maybe you've worked so diligently to establish this or to secure this. You, you've bent your life around this particular relationship or person or thing. If that's threatened, how do you respond? Does it shake your faith in God? If so, friends, I would submit to you that whatever that thing is, that is functioning as your true object of worship, as your true hope. The beauty of Abraham's response and obedience in this section comes from him refusing to cling to that which is most precious to him, demonstrating that God is ultimately what is most precious to him. And as with Abraham, perhaps God is using trials and tests to prove to us the sufficiency of his word, that his promises are sure. That's why the central verse in this section on the mount of the Lord, it was provided. It has been well said that the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement is the greatest summation of the gospel. Now, let me unpack that for you. Penal is penalty. Uh, that, that Jesus took the penalty we deserve for our sins by substituting himself for us. Uh, notice the logic. The ram was substituted specifically for Isaac. Jesus was substituted for God's people. As he explains in John 10, he lays his life down for his sheep whom he knows, and they know his voice. Jesus substitutes himself by taking the just penalty and the wrath of God, which his people deserved. And he exchanges it for his righteousness. This is the great exchange of 2 Corinthians 5.21. 
For our sake, God made Christ to be sin, though he knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, there's a number of other wonderful hints in this passage uh, where the wood is placed on Isaac. Just as he carries the wood up the hill, so too Jesus would carry the wood up the hill to his place of execution. Uh, and, and there are other wonderful little things as well, that, that he is the son, the only son of the father, as we see here. But the central message of Genesis 22 is of God's providing a substitute that is perfect to accomplish his intended goal. It's why Christ could say on the cross, it is finished. He had completed the work. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, Hebrews 10, 14 would say. So whereas we, like Abraham, often fail, and where it is doubtful that we would ever have obeyed in this situation, the wonderful glory of the gospel message, friends, is that we're not saved by the measure of our faithfulness and how well we navigate the tests and trials of life. Rather, we're saved because the Son of God took on flesh and substituted himself for the sins of his people so that all those who repent and believe in him will find him to be an all-sufficient Savior. See, the, the trials and tests of life will and continue to come as we recounted four major natural disasters, not even considering diseases and wars and famines and other such things. But Jesus has sworn that no one will snatch his sheep from his hands. So friends, in the midst of the trials and tests, may we be reminded of Jesus' words, that in this life we will have tribulation, but take heart, because he has overcome the world. Or as Spurgeon put it so wonderfully in his devotion morning and evening, friends, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and by good report, by plenty and by poverty, by joy and by distress, by persecution and by peace, by all these things is the life of your souls maintained. And by each of these you are helped on your way. Oh, think not, believer, that your sorrows are out of God's plan. They are a necessary part of it. We must, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom. Learn then even to count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. And then he quotes an old hymn. Oh, let my trembling soul be still, and wait thy wise, thy holy will. I cannot, Lord, thy purpose see, yet all is well, since ruled by thee. Friends, God uses the trials and tests of this life to prove the sufficiency of his word. But especially the sufficiency of his word made flesh in the Son, the Lamb for sinners slain. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and for the glorious reality of the substitution of your Son, which we will come to celebrate in the supper. And we pray that as we join together in eating and drinking and proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, that that reality would shape our lives more and more until he does. For Jesus' sake, amen.